Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome back to the West Ham Breakdown with me, Jack Elderton, and my mate, Callum Goodall. Um, before we start, I'm going to do some good hosting and uh, plug our website, analyticsunited.co.uk forward slash members. Uh, please do take out a subscription if you want to support the pod. Um, it's a pay-what-you-want model, and every little helps. And um, and also wanted to take an opportunity to thank everyone that has set up a subscription. We were on the TIFO Football Podcast for our first West Ham Breakdown away fixture um, a couple of weeks back, you can check that out um, through the Athletics feeds or, or on the on TFA Football Podcast and on on any app. And um, for us, that's like that's pretty much like Wembley of our niche, isn't it? It's 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 <laughs> it's as good as it gets. And um, yeah, it's just a massive thanks from both of us, really, to to everyone who's been subscribed, everyone who's been listening to the pod, everyone who's been sharing our work, because none of it would have happened without that support. And um, we're very very grateful. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. We've um, it's funny looking back. Come come quite a long way really um and yeah like you say we we wouldn't have been able to do it without you guys tuning in every week and um reading all the stuff we put out on the site as well so huge thanks but yeah tifo does feel like a pretty watershed moment i guess um and motivation to carry on doing this as well i think it was tifo that really got me into this sort of stuff um the sort of combination of the data side of things with the sensible transfer stuff but then also as a sort of modern history and politics student all the videos about weird links between football and oligarchs and revolutions in Egypt and all that sort of stuff. So it was, um, yeah, had me hooked and sort of in lockdown made me start looking into doing stuff like that myself. And um, we've landed here with our own site and yeah, we're lucky enough to be invited on by John. So yeah, really, really humbling experience for us, but um, motivation, like I say, to, to carry on putting out the content that we do. We're going to talk about two West Ham games uh, in this pod. We're going to talk a little bit at the end about David Moyes and also about a new signing. And we'll start with a really disappointing 3-0 loss at at Man United, but one that afterwards I think we both feel fairly positive um, about. The result is obviously a bit of a disaster. You never want to go um, anywhere and and lose a game 3-0. But in terms of the strength of our performance it felt a lot like we were getting back to the kind of level we need to be at to pick up results through the, through the second half of the season. Our performances haven't been quite right for, for the last few weeks. Um, 
particularly our execution has been off and we'll come to that being an error you know an area where there are lots of errors again um but between the boxes this was possibly the best we've played this season yeah 100 percent. i think when you think of a david moyes side as we've often said it's all about being dominant in your own boxes but often that's been at the expense of being able to do anything in between them um quite he's often. got harsh he's got it yeah. two-footed off the, well, off the top of the top <laughs> he's not wrong um but yeah it was it was actually really promising in possession i think we'll we'll break it down um into finer detail as we as we go through the pod but i think yeah as a team i think we played well and uh unfortunately against teams like man united with the individual quality that they do have uh these games can be defined in moments and unfortunately for us individual errors meant that man united were given opportunities to punish us and with the players that they have um they're capable of doing that if you give them those moments i think hoyland obviously scoring a pretty nice finish and garnacho with some good movement to to get those two goals so those are the things that are going to be exploited and for us at the other end we didn't take our chances um and that's how you end up in a situation losing 3-0 but I think generally speaking we created a lot um we played on the front foot we were good in possession there was lots of good interchanges and rotations between the players which I think away from home at Old Trafford against a team that seemed to have turned a bit of form Uh, I know every time someone says that about United at the minute it seems to ruin them so apologies if there's any United fans listening but they they look a lot well they didn't actually look that great but on the the results have definitely been better recently so to go up um, and sort of take the game in the way that we did I thought was a real positive sign actually because a lot of people would have assumed that we would have gone there and and sat off and sat in our shells and waited to hit them on the counter but I think that in and of itself the fact that we actually managed to keep possession create chances is a real good sign moving forward that if we can go away against weaker opposition and do the same we should start picking up those points on the road again yeah and in a way the game is 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 perhaps a neat encapsulation of some of the game state issues that people have been exploring in, in West Ham spaces online over the last couple of weeks it's something that we spoke about uh with John on the on the Tifa podcast as well um which is that we're quite a good team um in in level game states and um we're quite good through through a combination of of luck and good defending um at at at, at keeping hold of leads um but we struggle quite badly when we're behind and I think yeah, it, it summed that up for me in a way, even though we created um, enough, I would suggest, I think we had in, enough opportunities, particularly at sort of the first 25 minutes of the second half, um, yeah. had really some, some really good openings. Um, it, it still seems like a perhaps even a bit of a sort of psychological issue now for the team is that although we do sometimes find a way back into games, um, we just struggle too often when we go behind early um and i wonder if that is is in part because of the the, the natural way that uh well i don't wonder i think it's definitely to do with this the way that a team changes how they play when they're in the lead and although man united weren't very good in this game i think they were able to having got the lead sit off a little bit and, and soak up pressure and and although we had a lot of play in the right areas we possibly didn't execute well enough in the actual final third and when we did get through and create the kind of opportunities that we were looking for the whole game just didn't come off you know the Bowen chance in the second half is such a good example of that finally managed to work a perfect opening and um and he just didn't didn't put it away I think let's talk a little bit before we come on to those those negatives about the performance about um the positives in build up and the positives in the approach play because 
I was talking to Carl before we started recording and saying so often we look at how many times West Ham pass into zone 14, how many passes into the half spaces West Ham record, and it's you know pretty shocking low numbers. And yet we get good results because we're a very direct, wide-focused team and we score goals on the break. Um, and, and this was a complete reversal for this one. Lots of passes into zone 14, lots of half-space activation. Um, we'll come on to individual performances as a part of that. But the first person I want to talk about there is, is Ben Johnson, who was playing in, a, in an unfamiliar position, um, obviously he's done right back, left back, center back, and, and even central midfield recently. Um, but it was a surprise to see him start on the wing. And I think um, massive credit to him really for being able to pick up the right spaces in the same way that someone like Pablo Fornals or Saibin Rama might have done previously. Um, but actually possibly to a higher level than either of those players, <laughs> be able to neatly and quickly do the right thing, which is f- passing then to the overlapping fullback or whoever's rotated into the wide space to to get into that into that free space that we're very good at creating and if we want to talk about how that's possible the best way that you can go and look at that is by going and looking at one of the goals we scored against Sheffield United in the in the first game this season we pulled off a really nice string of um interchanges with where the fullback is then free to overlap on the outside and that's where we create our opportunities to 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 really threaten teams a lot of the space that we create in the final third the good openings we create in the final third are our fullbacks overlapping into into the wide space to eventually receive after one of the wingers has come inside um and that's to do with you know johnson whoever it's been this season but johnson in this game pulling the fullback as tight as he can to the to the center backs then receiving in that space and then the fullback flying up beyond and that's also enabled as well in early build up we see similar structures with the wingers coming inside alvarez dropping between the center backs center backs then being free to carry up the pitch drawing the wingers in tight to them and then the fullback can go into the free space there's no one to mark them so then the center back can play the ball up up the flank or we we play in into midfield or into someone like Johnson if we can access them and then Johnson can play it um from the half space back out to to the to the to the flank um we did that pretty incredibly for this one like i think that's possibly the best i've i've seen us do that in a very long time um and yeah, like Johnson was a key part of it, but other players that deserve credit, Nyfergood and, and Edson Alvarez. Edson Alvarez certainly didn't deserve to be on the losing team, did he? <laughs> no, he had an unbelievable game. Maybe maybe his best in a West Ham shirt, I would say. I think he was central to everything we did in possession, which is something that I don't know that we've necessarily had a chance to see him really do yet in a West Ham shirt. I think when he arrived, we were very positive because we were aware of what he can offer a side in possession because we'd seen him shine in an Ajax side who obviously dominate possession in the Eredivisie every season. But we were slightly concerned about how that would transition into a West Ham side that tend to sit off more and noting particularly his defensive discipline and the way that he often springs out and can be overly aggressive. So to see him in a system where for large swathes of the game, I think we were a 40-minute period where we had 62% possession away at Old Trafford, which is crazy. But it really brought the best out of someone like Alvarez. I think he only misplaced one of his 56 passes in the entire game, um, and that was one of his 17 forward passes. So 94% accuracy when passing forward is is something that's obviously going to be crucial if we're, if we're going to have these games where we need to be comfortable in possession and recycle possession. And I think it also it also goes hand-in-hand hand with his with that sort of potentially overly aggressive approach sometimes because as soon as as soon as United clear the ball or, or win a header from a long ball, Alvarez springs up and is straight onto the receiver to win the ball and then recycle with a accurate pass forward, either into the half spaces into a John, into Ben Johnson 
or straight into the fullbacks or into the feet of a striker. So I think, yeah, hugely positive for him. And we also got to see some of the ball carrying as well, which we've which we've not seen a lot of from Alvarez. But again, just sort of that sort of unpredictability and build up in the sense that we have someone who, yes, is capable of going a game without well, with only misplays in one pass. But he also came away with a 100% dribble success rate from three attempted dribbles um, and four progressive runs. So just a massive contributor in possession, which I think is a huge part of why we were able to control large portions of the match. And then out of possession as well, he was monstrous. I'd say 75% defensive dual success rate against a Man United side with all the talent and attack that they have is is crazy. So yeah, was was really happy with that. And I think Ben Johnson as well, just before I, I hand back over to you, I think, yeah, I was really impressed. I have been the past few weeks, to be honest. I think the way that he's taken to this sort of moment in his West Ham career has just been admirable. Like I think it's clear that he's playing for this contract, which is that's I don't want that to come across in a negative way. Like you would expect his performances to go up, but he's done it so professionally and he's he's not moaning about, oh, I'm not getting to show off in my preferred position or he's he's going on, he's playing the minutes wherever he's told to play them and he's playing very well in all of them. Um, and I think this one, maybe it was between this one or the centre midfield shift that really impressed me. But I think what was notable and potentially interesting moving forward. I'm not suggesting that it's going to be a future position for him at right or left wing, but I think what's interesting is that, as you say, about him sort of forcing the fullbacks in narrow and sort of knowing when to release the fullbacks, I think there's a double advantage for him in that area in the sense that he has been that defender. He knows how he would respond in that defender's situation. So he knows if I go into this position, they're going to have to follow me because I'd follow me if I was on the other side. And then on the flip side, he's also been the fullback that he's waiting to pass to, making those overlapping runs. So he knows when to release the ball. It just helps that he actually has the ability to execute those passes as well. And I think as well, his ball carrying was pretty underrated. He was another one that came away with a pretty high, I think 75% dribble success rate. Um, I think, notably uh, the way that he was using his upper body strength there was one moment where he won quite I think he won two fouls in quick succession where he kind of invited two presses and just bundled his way through and had the sort of deafness of touch to carry it through and then get brought down which showed intelligence but also um, ability which I don't think we've seen a lot of Um, but yeah all round I was really impressed with Johnson and I think he was a huge facilitator along with Alvarez in our successes um like you say, Alvarez finding him in the half space and then Johnson releasing the ball from the half space to to facilitate the attack. Yeah, I think he was really good. It was interesting to see um how things changed in the second half. And a lot of people have been critical of the of the move um with, with Kudus and Johnson swapping wings in, in the second half, um, and Kudus's performance not being quite so strong. But I think part of that it, happens because Johnson had been so good in the first half and had got into so many good positions in the first half. You think we'll put Kudus on that side because we want his final third quality in those positions more than more than Johnson's. Um and although it didn't it didn't necessarily work out for the team, I do think that the the switch made a lot of sense in terms of where you see the potential upside. Kudus had played well on the left side, but he just hadn't been able to get that kind of final third impact moment that you want from him that he would be able to get on, on the right-hand side. And Bowen needed more support. Like As much as we had played well, we got to the final third well, we just didn't have enough around the box to, to properly threaten them. So moving Kudus to that side was possibly one of the only options we had to try and find a little bit more um, impact around the box. The last person I want to talk about before we move on to 
some of the things that didn't quite work out and talk about why they didn't work out um, is Naifa Gerd, who didn't get much shine when he was away at AFCOM. Not many people were talking about um, us missing him or looking forward to when he's come back. He's made a lot of er- errors so far in his West Ham career. But goodness me, it, you, having him back in the team made it so clear the difference between when West Ham can play football with Naifa Gerd in the team and when West Ham can't really play football without Naifa Gerd in the team. And yes, he still had a, a moment in this game. He had an aerial duel in the box that he absolutely should have won and he was just about bailed out by Zuma. It was a stupid mistake, um, one that he should never make. But aside from that, what he did on the ball was super impactful. And sometimes we think about a Gerd as someone that can just switch the play has these nice long diagonals, but doesn't really have much else to him. He carried well in this one. His pass selection was really good in this one. He found passes into the half space and really nice line breaking passes. I thought he was really, really impactful. And um, just what a relief it is basically to get Zuma off the left side of the defense. It just made us look so much more balanced and so much better in everything that, that we did. To move from those good performances onto what went wrong, I did mention Bowen and how we were lacking a little bit of sort of final third impact, um, particularly in the box in, in the first half. And um, we created so many good opportunities to cross it, um, in this game, so many good uh, openings in the final third. Um, I'm thinking particularly the Emerson one in the second half just before uh, Man United's second goal where he has to make the run um, to create an option for Emerson. I think Emerson is so surprised that there isn't someone making that run, namely Bowen, that he sort of takes a too long to recalibrate and realise that he's got to shoot. He's almost just so expectant that the striker's going to be there for him to slot the ball across to. Um, so you see some of those moments where he's not, quite you know he's not natural in the role he's not played the role enough to to just have that kind of instinct in in the way that he needs it but possibly more impactful in this game was just how many chances we had to cross and how much of a difficult time he had against harry Maguire um in in the physical duels also thinking about some of the hold up which didn't really work out too well for him in this one um i think my conclusion on this is that I think we might struggle a little bit in the final third without at least one of Pakatar and Antonio. A lot of people talked about Pakatar and us missing the creative influence that he brings. I think he was a massive miss, of course, and he would create different kinds of opportunities that Bowen would be able to thrive off a little bit more than, than these sort of wide openings and, and crosses into the box. I also think, you know, you were going to talk about cross completion. We didn't really get the time to talk about it, but it's difficult for those wide players when it's Bowen because you can't hang the ball yep. up for a target man. You're, you're looking yep. for these low crosses and then the ball is bound to cannon around and bounce off of people. It's harder to, to complete crosses into the box. Um, but yeah, I think with Pakatar, you'd maybe be able to create more of the chances that Bowen likes. But even if, if Pakatar isn't there, um, Antonio would just be able to be more impactful physically in those moments, make sure that even if he's not winning the duels, he'll be able to push centre-backs center out of out of the way and create things that drop in the box for for other players. And lastly, with, with Pakatar again, sorry, it's just that even if he starts on the left and Bowen starts through the middle, it doesn't have to come from the bench, the idea that they're going to swap because Bowen's struggling or whatever. They in-game can can rotate so much more. And we saw before Pakatar's injury the fluidity of that front three and how that caused problems for opposition defences. As much as Ben Johnson played well in this one, and we had so many, um, so much sustained pressure in the final third, we missed that kind of rotation in the front three. You know, Man United knew who the ultimate threat was in the box. They were able to win the duels against Bowen, and they didn't really have to worry about 
Kudus coming into that space, Bowen moving out to to to, to the flank, and then Pakatar being in there as well. Um, it just wasn't enough of that going on to really unsettle the Man United defence. So I think basically my conclusion here is just looking forward to getting one of those play- both of those players back will be brilliant, and one of those players back will have a huge impact on the team. And then moving from that to talk about. Um, defense and 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 you know ultimately we've lost the game 3-0 and a lot of people will be scratching at their eyes you know listening to that or scratching but there is listening to this saying um how are you so positive after a game that we've lost 3-0 why are you talking about all these good individual performances how can you have good individual performances when you lose a game 3-0 and i think really it was a bit of a freak outcome that we lost the game 3-0 we had enough openings in the final third to score ourselves and uh, Man United's second goal is such a good encapsulation of just the, exactly what I'm saying. Because what are the chances, you know, of that of that kind of shot going in? We want. I wanted to take it on to talking about um, not really blocking shots as well as we possibly can, and, and give you an opportunity to talk talk about the metrics there, Cal. But before I do that, I do just want to say with the first goal, that kind of thing really can't can't happen. I thought Warbrows played really well in this game, so I don't want to get on his on his case or, or anything. I think he's done a really good job at West Ham in the number 10 position, and he struggled in, in other areas. We'll talk about him struggling on the left when we come to talk about the Bournemouth game. But given how important it is for us to stay level or get ahead, in situations like that where the ball's dropping and you're in a duel with Casemiro, just win. put your body in the way and win the free kick. Same with the Sheffield United one with Brereton Diaz. Just put your body in the way. Don't hang a leg out um, because you create scenarios from which teams can score goals. Um, and, and you said to me before we started recording, how much do you think um, that's on a gird as well when it comes to what happens after the, the ball is turned over by Casemiro? And I think it is on a gird. You know, he overcompensates, if you like once Hoyland receives the ball and then ends up sort of in a position where Hoyland can shift to the right and get a shot off. But the reason for that in my mind is who I want to, to hand over to you to talk about. It's Kurt Zuma and that lack of physicality. Again, he's flat footed when the turnover happened. He isn't predicting it. He isn't anticipating it in exactly the way you're sent, you want your centre back to do. You want your centre back to always be one step ahead, thinking about what the worst case scenario is. Think how well Mavropanos has done when he's come into the team of just stepping in front of the striker and winning the ball. Zuma was in no position to do that because he's so flat-footed. And because Agurd is having to do his job as well as his own so much in this game, covering across every time Zuma is caught out of position because of his issues in terms of his mobility, he overreacts because he thinks he needs to get there to help Zuma out. And then it creates the the, the, the problem, um, the, the space for Hoyland to get a shot off. So yeah, I just wanted to give, give that as a sort of opening and, and, and give you an opportunity to talk about how big an impact it's now having on the team, Zuma's performances. Yeah, uh, it's, it's really disappointing. I think it's, uh, I kind of said to you before the pod about whether you would have looked to start Mavropanos in this game instead of Zuma, um, given that we both agreed, and we'll talk about it later, that Mavropanos has played well recently, particularly in that Bournemouth game, and, and Zuma hasn't. Um, but I think the rationale from Moyes, presumably, was that, OK, yes, Zuma didn't have a particularly good game against Bournemouth, but he was playing on that weak side, having seen his left foot a lot, which caused a lot of problems. It caused massive delays in terms of him being able to do things quick enough. And the logic from Moyes must have been, oh, well, with a Gerd coming back, we've got a left-footed centre-half who can play on the left side and free up Zuma to just do what he's good at on the right-hand side and get that balance back. Um, and logically, yes, that does make sense. I think, as we've said, a Gerd came in, 
massive positive contributor um i think his as as you rightly said his return to the side has been massively downplayed i think his absence was not really felt by the fan base but it was definitely felt by the team um and i think we've seen that um but yeah zuma unfortunately didn't have the uptick in form that perhaps Moyes would have anticipated back on his favoured side. Um, and yeah, the flat-footedness, I think, both in terms of when he's backpedalling towards goal, trying to jockey the defenders and having to anticipate things, um, is becoming increasingly evident. Um, and I mean, that sort of flat-footed, slow, just lack of haste is turning into a lack of awareness as well. And, and we've seen that for a long time in recovery when he's running sort of back towards goal when we've been hit on the break but there's not really any excuse for it when he's facing the attacker I don't think because he's not he's not disadvantaged in that scenario I understand when we're sort of retreating because that's not his that's not his skill set right to expect Zuma to outpace a like say if it was Rasmus Hoyland on the break you wouldn't expect him to win that because in a foot race he's never going to win that but I don't think it's unreasonable for us expect us for us to expect him to be able to defend that side of of the goal when he's doing a centre back's job of standing up the striker, um, and he's so slow to get out there that, like you say, a Gerd decides that it's in his best interest to to sort of run across and try and make that sort of last ditch lunge to to cover for Zuma. Um, but Hoyland, fair play to him, he he reads the situation well, and because of the speed at which a Gerd is travelling to get there, Hoyland's able to just shift across. Uh, in the opposite direction that Agurd's moving to free himself up the space to shoot and fair play, it's an incredible finish. He strikes it really well and there's there's not much you can do beyond that. Um, and I think more generally just zooming out, to, <laughs> zooming out to look at Zuma, if you will, um, I think all of that can potentially be overlooked if he's doing the other things that you expect him to do really well, which is defend the box, be physical, win the aerial duels, win the shoulder-to-shoulder battles. But we're reaching a point now where he's not really doing that either. I think he only won one aerial duel out of six against United, which is 17%. So if he's not doing the things that you don't really expect him to do, that's not great, but fine, you're not expecting it. But if he's also not doing the things that he's sort of meant to be doing as the sort of non-progressive, more aerially dominant physical centre-back, if he's not contributing on either side, I think that becomes a real issue. And, and I think now the question returns of whether you go with Mavropanos and Agurd or Zuma and Agurd. But I think the logic is less clear now because you've just been given a case study of a game where Zuma hasn't actually been able to do the stuff that you would expect him to do in defending his box, whereas Mavropanos has shown increasingly that, that he's capable of doing that and offering a progressive outball on the right-hand side of defence as well. Um, and I wonder if we will see that partnership um, with Mavropanos and Agurd. And, and I think in terms of offering us a lot in possession, there's huge upside there. And I think if you can get Mavropanos to do the stuff that Zoom is meant to be able to do as well, then that could be a really promising partnership going forward. The only real question mark around it is that the next opponent is Arsenal, who you would expect more so than against United for us to sit in, defend our box. And whilst I have just said that Zuma didn't do a good job of doing that, it wasn't really... I don't think the game probably panned out as we expected it to against United. I think we would have expected to be defending a lot deeper, sat a lot deeper, facing a lot more crosses, heading out a lot more... Um, 
whereas that wasn't really the way that the game went. And so Zuma maybe it's no excuse, but perhaps felt a little bit uncomfortable and wasn't it wasn't the defensive style that he was used to. So maybe in hindsight, the game would have suited Mavropanos more. Um, and maybe the Arsenal game, if we assume it plays out as we would expect, as games against Arsenal have done, where they dominate possession for large swathes of the game, create huge shooting chances, but we're able to limit them to shots from outside the box because we defend the box so well. Then stylistically, yes, I guess Zuma does make more sense. But if you base it on form as well, then th- there is a real dilemma for Moyes, I think, because Mavropanos has shown that he can do that and Zuma has just been in a terrible run of form, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I think it's likely that we'll see Mavropanos picked uh, quite a lot in the second half of the season, hopefully. Um, but I, I do think that I would still go with Zuma for these kinds of games. Uh, I don't... Obviously, it changes, and part of the problem is you don't really change your centre backs. And maybe it would be nice, you know, if you go one nil down just to hook him off and put Mavropanos on yeah. because the game's changed. And you no longer really want that lack of recovery pace to, to, to be causing problems for you defensively, but um, and lack of mobility generally causing problems for you defensively, especially when the defensive line height is resultantly higher. Um, but I think you still approach these games against teams like Arsenal, particularly. You know, Ogbonna played really well against them, didn't he, earlier in the, in the season? I yeah. think there's an opportunity for it to be the kind of game where Zuma really thrives. And I think he deserves that, that chance. And um, what, what the defense looks like in the, in the rest of the season from this point onwards will probably depend significantly on how he performs in this, in this next, in this next game. Um, I wanted just as before, just before we move on and talk about the, the third goal and then segue through to, to Bournemouth, just to, to give you um, a chance to say as well about, Shots blocked. It was something that I picked out as potentially um, a slight issue to, to maybe a, a slightly bigger issue. feels like a couple of shots have got through the season that probably shouldn't have. And um, I had a look at the data and I know we came out bottom, but I thought you'd be able to actually produce the actual number and compare <laughs> us to some of the teams that defend deep as well and, and have to do a lot of blocking shots to, to protect their goal. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Uh... Since Moyes has been in charge, shots blocked has been a strength of West Ham. Um, it's kind of, you think back to the Dawson days and I think... I was just going to still... say, sorry, sorry to say, <laughs> just Craig Dawson, isn't it? Just... Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think he actually at Wolves is still one of the league leaders in that respect. So I suppose you can, if you were really going to be nitpicky with it, you can probably attribute some of the drop-off to that, just to the personnel change. But generally speaking, the style of defending hasn't changed drastically. So to see the drop-off that we have seen um, be so dramatic is is quite alarming, I would say. And when we look at the numbers, like you say, uh, in terms of the sort of percentage of the shots we face, the percentage of blocked shots, um, we actually rank lowest in the league. So we're only blocking 23.9% of the shots that we face. Um, which for a David Moyes side is shocking and also worrying, like we say. Um, and if you think of other teams that sort of approach the game in a sort of more back-to-the-wall, counter-attacky, uh, box demolition, dominance, however you want to put it, um, style, uh, it's interesting to note that Luton, uh, a complete flip side, uh, leading the league with 36.1% of the shots blocked. And I think that, is yeah indicative of a drop off that is likely influencing some of the results that we've been we've been getting I think um, and has probably been 
contributing to the successes that we've had in previous seasons with the Dawsons and stuff because shots like that second goal where it kind of unfortunately goes in off a gird is just a, a flip of a result a season ago where Dawson would have got in front of it and it would have gone out. Well, if it came off Dawson, it probably would have been a counter-attack. It would have been straight in the other <laughs> opposition half and flowing onto the Antonio's foot or something. Um, but yeah, it's just unfortunate. And I think as well, the teams around there, Brentford are up there in the top four for percentage of block shots as well. Um, and Man United are actually third, which kind of sums it up perfectly. Arsenal complete the top four in second place. And I think, again, we've seen Arsenal shift somewhat stylistically this season in the, in the approach they're defending where they have put a lot more emphasis on box defending. Um, I think Arteta's even referenced David Moyes as some sort of inspiration in that respect when he said he played against Moyes and, and that made him think about the way that he defended his box and now they're one of the best defensive leagues, uh, best defensive teams in the league rather. So um, yeah, it's it's just in an interesting... Yeah, in the world, 100%. Um, yeah, and I think it's just, yeah, interesting. And I mean, there's other caveats to it. I mean, I guess it goes without saying that you if if one of the other things that David Moyes is good at is forcing teams to take shots from outside the box. So obviously you're going to block less of those because they're coming from further away rather than last-ditch shots, etc. But also, on occasion, we defend with such a low line that the shots <laughs> do come in last-ditch moments and you remove a door from there and I don't want to say that it's because less defenders are willing to throw themselves in front of the shot I don't think that's it I don't think it's a case of effort I just think it's it's not their first port of call is to just dive in front of a shot whereas I think for Dawson it probably genuinely is it probably is just like sorry I'm gonna go for this uh at every available opportunity um so yeah shifting personnel leads to shifting style um so we just thought we'd bring that one up before we go on to to the third goal and, and an individual um, that was pretty culpable for it. Um, I do want to say it would be, you know, totally hypocritical of us for, to not give credit to Man United for the win as well. I, I think we, we've talked a lot on this podcast this season about how important box dominance is. And if you can dominate both boxes, you can render a lot of the stuff that happens between them pretty irrelevant. And Man United did that. And um, we can't spend half a season and a bit more and, and a lot more before that praising West Ham for doing that to other teams, dominating the boxes and, and making all their nice passing between the two pretty useless uh, without praising other teams when they do it to us. And Brentford have done it to us a few times. I wouldn't have expected Man United to be a team that did it to us, but they they, they certainly did. And, um, and yeah, I think big credit to some of those guys in the Man United back line who pulled out some incredible defensive uh, sort of last-ditch defensive moments when we did manage to find space. You know, Dallow had a couple... Um, Maguire had one brilliant tackle when Johnson looked like he was going to speed through into sort of a three on keeper possibly situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were just away and Maguire raced out brilliant side tackle. Um, and even Luke Shaw, um, won a, you know, an amazing header against Bowen against the odds. So I just think, you know, there are a lot of moments at the back where United did come up trumps and they deserve credit for, for pulling that off as frustrating it is as it is when you have that much pressure. I think Onana as well. Uh, like yeah. he was single-handedly responsible for keeping out 1.7 uh, expected conceded goals. So on an average day, we would have scored at least one against a 
keeper that's performing at an average level. And to be honest, if you think about the form that the likes of Kudus and Bowen were in earlier in the season, we probably would have scored two because we would have overperformed that. So, um, yeah, it's just one of those days where, like you say, the defence did well and, and Onana stops two chances that on any other day would have gone in, particularly that Alvarez one. was. In, I really thought that was in and then Onana just seemed to almost shapeshift. His body just changed position. <laughs> he just He just kept it out. Yeah, the XG nerds are laughing, aren't they? The people who've been going over performance, over performance, unsustainable. <laughs> and then it all comes home to roost. And yeah, we're I think it's four is it four Premier League games in a row or five Premier League games in a row where we've underperformed our XG now. So yeah. um we need that to flip round and and soon. And actually I you know, with the quality that we do have in the front line with players like Burton and Goodness, I'm pretty confident it will. They they are really high quality in terms of their ability to finish um chances and and also, you know, some of, somewhat playing into that is the fact that perhaps the chances we've created haven't been so counter-attack-y, terrible use of English. Um, <laughs> but uh, therefore, you have you have a higher proportion of low X, lower XG chances, which naturally, you know, um, leans towards yeah. situations that people are not going to take quite so easily as some of those really big presentable opportunities that um, those players have been getting in the first half of the season. Um, onto that third goal and Calvin Phillips. Obviously, we have we've ha- it's been a while since we did a podcast. We recorded one, I should say. In fact, we recorded near enough three. Um, just after the four nows Ben Rama debacle, and we talked about Phillips and his signing and how it would impact the team and so on and so forth. We're a little bit further on from that now. If I was to sum up what we said about four nows and Ben Rama over three different attempted recordings, it would be the Ben Rama deal makes sense. The four nails deal is just silly. I, we, I don't think either of us understand it. Um, fair play. If we want to give him an opportunity to move on, given he's been angling for a move, he's not done that in a negative way at all. But I wonder if there might've been some agreement in place around if a La Liga team comes in with a somewhat yep. acceptable bid, we would accept it. Still, it's a shit deal. Apologies for my language for West Ham, because he's a player that stops the kind of tactical experimentation that we're going to go on to talk about in the Bournemouth game. Um, and his flexibility and fitness is an important part of any kind of backup string um, player. So a real shame to see him leave. He was such an important player for us um, for, for, for such a long time, really. And and a shame to see Ben Rama go as well. I mean, it was clearly his time. Um, it couldn't have been more obvious, really, that his time at West Ham had come to, to its sort of end. Um, but he had some really good moments here. He had a really impactful um, season and a bit. Uh, it never really properly came together for him. And I wonder if he was ever really suited to the way that we wanted to play. He never found a proper home in, in, in either, you know, he had a couple of good moments at 10. I think he found some of his best form early Europa conference league games in that three, four, one, two shape where he had the freedom to move to both flanks playing as a sort of 10 in front of a, a more stable defensive system. We just couldn't really find a way to create the conditions in which he, was going to thrive and unfortunately for him he wasn't a good enough talent for us to move everything else around to incorporate him and get him playing to his his best level I think what he does deserve credit for is he did gradually improve what he did defensively he pressed better and better each season he worked harder each season to cover the fullback and uh, in terms of what David Moyes would have asked for for someone who's maybe wasn't quite perfect for for what he wants from a player in that position, he did work on it and get better at those aspects over time. So sad to see both go really pleased with the Ben Rama deal because it's good financially for for the club and and disappointed with the four nails one, bringing it on to Calvin Phillips, who was a player who came in. We both think he's going to be an important player for us. 
in the especially towards the later latter stages of the if we get to them the Europa League I think he'll be really impactful in in, in that part of the season and, and we desperately needed cover in that position I know a lot of people have talked about left wing a lot of people have talked about you know needing another forward that's absolutely true but it does not negate the fact that for the whole first half of the season if Alvarez wasn't there we were in you know up shit creek without a paddle basically and and he fixes some of that or at least helps to fix some of that the problem is, is he's not fit and he gets yeah. the goal away against Bournemouth. He's given a goal away now against Man United as well. We both think the Man United one is a lot worse. But the thing that's that, that, that links the two of them is his failure to scan, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I think the United one was infuriating because I've seen a few people suggest that, it, that Johnson's somewhat at fault. Um, but I'm, I think I joked to you, Jack, before the pod about the two options that Johnson has uh, is to pass back to Zuma or to pass inside to Phillips. Both players are under pressure. And if I'm faced with that choice, particularly given the form that Zuma has shown recently in terms of his playing out from the back, um, I think I'm obviously passing to Phillips, a player who has earned a reputation uh, both for Leeds and uh, England, less so at City, but largely as a press-resistant midfielder who is comfortable receiving and releasing within one touch. So I think Johnson is fine playing it there. I don't think he's over hit or anything. Uh, he's played it to Phillips's favoured foot. I think the issue, like you say, is that Phillips doesn't look over his shoulder. He doesn't anticipate the movement of McTominay to press him and for some inane reason decides to try and roll horizontally into the middle of the pitch and, and play through that way and just gets it tack- obviously tackled. Um, and yeah, the, the failure to scan results in a counter-attack for Man United and you see Zuma's lack of recovery pace once again and a good trying to have to compensate by essentially trying to defend three attackers in, in one in one moment and it was only ever going to end one way. Um, but yeah, I think, like you say, that will come with with fitness for Phillips. I think he's he's not played for a long time, and clearly he's not up to speed. Um, but also, I think a bedding in period of coming from a Manchester City side where teams nine times out of ten don't even bother trying to press City because they know that if they do press, they'll just play through them and, and cut them apart. So Phillips in that situation in a City side doesn't even he should scan because any good six should scan, um, but he knows. It, he knows that there's probably not as immediate danger as there was in that situation with McTominay literally breathing down his neck. He knows that in a city side where there's no PPDA against, he can probably roll internally and then have the time to play it out and switch it to the left flank. But it's just going to take a bit of getting used to um, in this Moy system where we are harangued uh, because we are not renowned for being particularly comfortable in possession and therefore teams think that they can win the ball high up the pitch and attack against us as they did in that situation. Yeah, I think his his brain is still at Manchester City and it's moving at twice the speed his body is. So, you know, the, yeah. the, that, that needs to sort of all come together and, and into sync. And, and when it does, it is worth saying his quality is evident. And, and we've seen that even in moments across the two games that he's been here. Um, it's just, he's just not ready yet. And And the concern really is, signing a player for the for the amount of money that we have that is so far away from being <laughs> yeah. from being ready um so i don't know i'm worried about how this development is going to happen how this transition is going to happen how he's going to get up to speed um but you know i was talking to charlie earlier for for analytics and you know charlie said i think we just might have to power through you know just keep playing him 
we haven't got FA Cup third rounds or, or early mm-hmm. early stages of the League Cup or Europa, you know, Europa first games or anything like that. I think he's just going to have to play. We're just going to have to power through it, and and hopefully he 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 moves pretty quickly in getting up to the kind of speed he needs to be at to to be at his best level. We could talk more about him, but I want to move on because we've, we're we're a little bit short on time. A lot of a lot of people spoke after the Bournemouth game about it being a horrendous performance. There's a lot of anger after that game, a one or draw against um, the Cherries. I would say it was weird in a way because my expectation was really high for the game because both teams have been in such good form in terms of the points that they picked up over the, the you know the 10 game period prior i think both teams are in the top six of the form table over over the, 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 the 10 games prior to that match um but both teams was were underwhelming weren't they i mean it was i, I watched the game back again which was torturous i i must admit and I don't. I think West Ham were bad, but I think Bournemouth were just as bad. There was a lot of kind of aimless long balling from from both sides, wasn't there? Yeah, I think we were massively off the pace, but I also think that's potentially not to be expected because, as you would say, you'd expect more from them given that they hadn't played for a few days. But in the month prior to that, we'd had two games against Bristol City and a bizarre game against Sheffield United that we would have been largely demoralised after the way that it ended. Um, so I think maybe it was just a shock to the system coming up against this Bournemouth side compared to the opposition that they'd faced the month, throughout the month prior. Um, but yeah, I think we were useless in possession. Um, I think in terms of our positional attacks, we were just hugely ineffective. Um, I think only 18% of them resulted in a shot, which is uh, about 6% lower than our season average. But Bournemouth were even worse uh only 12% of theirs resulted in a shot so I think it was just two teams that were hugely hugely off the boil and two systems that were suited but also not suited to one another if that makes sense like the two systems nullified each other completely which just led to a horrendous game and I understand why fans left the game feeling horrified and angry because it was a, I went to the game it was the first game I actually have ever taken my girlfriend to and I'm not sure she'll be coming back um, <laughs> but I think the reason that people felt so angry is that not only did they see a bad West Ham performance but it was compounded by what was just a horrific football game in general so it, it just made it seem even worse like we'd watch 90 minutes of dross from both sides the only goals were a penalty and a, and a massive unforced error. So, um, yeah, it, it was just poor. Um, but that's not to excuse the West Ham performance. I thought we were dreadful, as we'll, as we'll go on to. But, yeah, it wasn't just us that were bad. Yeah, I think obviously Semenyo has his chance and that kind of plays into into the narrative as well. And they had another big chance, which was offside. So it, it gave the feeling that Bournemouth had been perhaps a little bit better than they actually were. I think when you talk about the systems, it's quite interesting. I, I, I like Irola. I like Moyes. Um, in terms of the way their teams play, I think they're quite interesting, especially in comparison maybe to some of the other teams in the in the league. They're both doing different things. Yeah. Um I just it just let's not put them together. Can we just skip those <laughs> fixtures? Um I was so excited about it. I thought it's gonna be really interesting seeing how like a high pressing team against a team that's not very press resistant would would work in terms of them creating moments to counter, but then also giving too much space so that we get our players into positions where we could maybe be threatening as well by being direct. But it, what ended up transpiring is that also Iraola, in terms of his on-ball principles, is there's a lot of like passing around the back and then they launch it. And, you know, you were saying 
our PPD, uh, our PPDA numbers look pretty good for for this game. And I, and so it's not because we pressed really that much. I mean, we did a little bit. Bowen ran around, you know, ran his socks off, really forcing players to kick the ball long. But their setup at the back is not conducive to being able to play through. It's conducive mm-hmm. to to playing a couple of passes and then launching it. And yeah. when you come up against a team that's going to launch it all the time especially without really massive physical presences at the top <laughs> end of the pitch. And West Ham have got like Edson Alvarez, Thomas Sutton, like Kurt Zuma, yeah. Dean Osman. It's, it's not going to end well, is it? So that's what happened. Bournemouth just passed it, passed it around the back, launched it. We won a header, got the ball down, and then launched it back up the other end, at which point they won the ball because we haven't got Antonio. So, I mean, yeah. it, it just led to a game where it's just pinball of long balls until a free kick is given. And then we go again. Um, Let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about short on time, so I haven't got much time to talk about this. But a little bit about West Ham's tactics in this one. Um, we tried something. We <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we tried something. Let's never try it again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Will Prowse was on the left to start with. Let's not do that. It was really bad. There were so many moments in the first half where the space was on the left. They were able to just see massive space um, on the right side of their defense, which suits them as well from an out-of-possession point of view because they're all about squeezing to one side of the pitch. Uh, so it's like perfect for them, squeeze to one side of the pitch and not even have to worry about the space they're leaving because Prowse is in it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of the time when when that space was there, unfortunately, Prowse was so desperate to come to the ball that he would start coming within five yards of Emerson and then looking at Emerson and being like, right, I want you to pass me the ball and then run 80 yards. But then you're also going to have to play left back because I'm not going to play left back um, out of possession. So it's just asking way too much of your left back. Um, And it led to a, to a really confused first half performance on the ball. And then we went to a diamond in the second half, which to be honest, might've been worse. Yeah. Yeah, it was painful. I mean, I think it was brought on in large part, obviously, by the injuries to the team and the fact that we basically had to try and play and, well, make a midfield out of solely central midfielders. <laughs> so there was a lot of shoehorning going on. Um, and I suppose that speaks to wider issues with regards to squad planning and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it was, I, I just didn't, yeah, I, I don't know. I just, like you say, I don't want to see it again. Um, I think watching Ward Prowse do that shift at left wing, watching Phillips kind of look like he was playing left wing, but I think we've identified it as just a very, very, very wide midfield three that was just getting split and split and split. Um, Yeah, I mean, I suppose we had to experiment, but hopefully that's the first and last time. That we <laughs> that we see that at least in that um at least in that setup with those personnel. Yeah, it, it, it didn't work. So the the last thing we're going to talk about in this episode is, is of course, I mean, how, how could we do a West Ham breakdown podcast in the current climate at West Ham? That's talking about David Moyes and um, the contract. <laughs> so he said himself that um, he's pretty confident that this is going to get sorted over the coming weeks. We've had this before. It seems to be rumbling on and on and on and on and on. Um, we had a long chat with John on the TFO podcast, which we would urge you to listen to about, you know, how to develop a mid-table team, how West Ham have done it, how West Ham are doing it, um, and whether Moyes is the right guy to continue that development. Um, I'm going to set my stall out on this. Um, I went through a bunch of data today and, and yesterday. I, I put it all out on, on, on my Twitter uh, feed, which you can get at Jack Alderton. 
Um, it's basically a bunch of comparisons with other Premier League managers we've had to to David Moyes. I mean, it's not really to David Moyes. It's just looking at all the numbers under different managers and seeing how they stack up against each other. And what I've tried to do is I've tried to stabilize everything or make it more accurate by using per season averages. So I'm not just seeing how things have moved over time, potentially also allowing for the kind of changes in how the league style has gone and, and et cetera, et cetera, to impact it. I've tried to do a season by season average and look at how many goals we're scoring, how many points we're picking up, how much value we're getting out of a squad, whether the squad is increasing or decreasing in value, whether points are moving in line with value. And um, I'd have to say, the conclusion of that is that Moyes took over an absolute shit show um, where squad value was so bad that if we didn't immediately have a good season and bring in good young players, we almost certainly would have got relegated. Um, if not the next season, the season afterwards, because the squad had been left in a position by Hussios and Pellegrini and, and Sullivan, of course, that we, it was so old for the most part and players were in such bad form that there was very little resale value on offer from anyone. And what I think we've done a good job of is big sales where possible on a couple of players, reinvesting, bringing younger guys in. And 2023 failure didn't work. We made some of the problems that we'd begun to fix worse again. Um, but huge credit to everyone involved for this summer, really, because when you look at it, it was desperately important for that value to start to go up again, for the profile to move back. We've still got a situation where we've got loads of old guys hanging around that haven't got any resale value, and we're going to have to probably lose a large number of them across the next two seasons, likely on freeze, which again creates a problem in terms of how you invest in the squad. But but the point that that leaves me with is it's not ready. Everyone keeps talking about we're ready for the next step. We're ready for the next stage of the project. It's not ready. What Moyes has done really well is the slow build, off-pitch development, stabilize things. We're not going down, kept us in Europe or kept us around the European conversation. And while we're doing that, while he's doing that, we can continue to invest in the right way, right age profiles. And then maybe in a couple of years, I could have a conversation in a few years, I could have a conversation about squads in a really good place, value of the squads in a really good place, got a nice mixed age profile here, mixed set of age profiles, sorry, and potentially also stuff with the stadium is tied up as well. We talked about that on the podcast that we tried to record and ended up not coming out, but their financial projections, um, the I don't know what they're even called these days. They've changed their name so many. Was it the London Legacy development commission i'm not sure what is it e20 stadium llp now but anyway their their, their financial projections are crap and it it seems to us as though at some stage that is going to have to be handed in in, into private hands at some point and and west ham is the likely is the obvious buyer for that west ham are obviously going to try and angle for a deal whenever that happens where it costs us nothing and and we get to um move on from from having to constantly move the stadium back and forth to be able to um, have athletics hosted at, at the London Stadium. I think if that is sorted and we continue to see the on-pitch, sorry, the off-pitch development that we've seen over the last few years where we're investing in scouts, we're investing in the data side of the business, um, we've got a uh, director of football in place now, if we can do a little bit of work to, to, to the training ground, all of that stuff, then I think we'd be more in a place where 
we could move on to whatever next step project is. And I still, still think even then there's a discussion to be had about what does success look like for West Ham? You know, what are the realistic opportunities for West Ham? Where is the ceiling financially for West Ham? And what can you do in terms of the results that you need to get to be in a stable position in the Premier League to make sure you don't fall out the bottom of the league and then create a really scary position with the kind of stadium that we've got um, whilst trying to do it in an attractive way? And I think the numbers even then point to general positives for Moyes because the, the you know comparing to other Premier League managers who's scoring more goals, winning more games, I think we can develop on the the style. Um, but my conclusion, even if this was a little bit garbled, is he's done a very good job up to this point, and the club is not in a position yet where I would be comfortable taking a a, a risk on something completely different. Um, and it would have to be that because there's no. In my view, there's very little point in in moving from David Moyes at the position he has West Ham right now to a manager who's at all similar to him in 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 style, because there's so much more opportunity for that to go wrong than it than it goes right. You'd have to be moving on to someone who's going to try and satisfy fans with both style and results. And I need the club to be in a better position for us to do that. Yeah, no, I think you make a good argument. I think I would be more inclined than you to pull the trigger in the summer. But I think I agree with regards everything off pitch needs to be in a good position for us to really do that. And I think you only have to look at the rest of the league to know that that's the case, right? Like United have brought in Eric Ten Hag, an exciting possession-based manager, but it's an absolute shit show behind the scenes and he's not been able to do any of the stuff on the pitch because he can't work in those environments. Chelsea, Ted Bowley comes in, appoints Graham Potter, who I think many would probably entertain as a potential Moyes successor because he plays the attractive football that everyone so desperately craves, unable to do it in the shit show that is Chelsea because the system and the infrastructure and the mess that is Chelsea at the minute is not conducive of a good working atmosphere. West Ham behind the scenes is less of a shit show than it has been, but they are still training out of Porter cabins at Rush Green. They still have David Sullivan in charge, who I can only imagine is quite difficult to work with. Um, Moyes is happy to be the guy that has to work under him and take his shit because I mean, it's simplification, but he's probably just very grateful to have this job and therefore he's willing to take any of the shit that comes with it. And if you can deliver in these conditions and translate that into on-pitch success as he has done, I think it's hard to argue against that until those conditions change, whether that be massive investment off the pitch or the removal or departure of David Sullivan in favour of someone who is more ambitious and willing to spend and invest than Sullivan is. Um, And I think it's very difficult to argue against Moyes in those conditions because he provides stability, which is something that when Moyes hasn't been here, hasn't been here. (laughs) Like when we've had Bilic and Pellegrini, it has been so unstable. Um, And we've had fans running onto the pitch and telling the board that they need to retire and resign. And and Moyes was the one that came in and fought all that off. And what's to say it doesn't happen again if Moyes leaves? Like, because the, the, the wider ecosystem hasn't changed bar the appointment of Tim Steiton or a couple of other Germans that wear glasses and love data. Apart from that, like there's, there's not masses that have changed and Hey, 
added potential bombshell is that Steiton might even be off himself in the summer if these Liverpool rumours are to be believed. And if that happens, fuck this. <laughs> like, uh, no, don't check. Because <laughs> that is a potential bin fire. Like, stylistically, I get it. I am also as fed up as a lot of people are of watching David Moyes football. I maybe don't appreciate it as much as other well jack i'm just looking at you here i probably don't appreciate it as much <laughs> as you do because it can be ugly and i think there is that element of style over substance and fans go to be entertained but would i trade in watching us play possession based football and finishing 14th and not winning anything for playing ugly football but winning competitions and generally finishing well in the league probably not because very quickly i'll get fed up of us having 60% possession but never being in competition or contention for anything because having experience does win that conference league final. I think we all know how that felt and we'd love to experience that again. Yeah. And I think it's just worth saying at this point, we're not saying it's not possible. I think we both think it it is. I just think in the current conditions, the probability, if you're looking at it as a set of probabilities, it's so much more likely that things would be, it's so it's it's very unlikely that you take the current situation, make a change, complete change of style, and then go really heavy in a couple of summers to be able to support it, and things get better than they mm-hmm. are right now. I think that is so incredibly unlikely. I think, like I say, if you have a few more summers under your belt, there isn't this aging squad disaster surgery thing happening every single summer. <laughs> yeah. And you've got some flexible, you know, you described Kudus as one of these guys, like two-way players, people that can be really good in a counter-attacking context under David Moyes, but could also thrive under in, in a different style under a different kind of manager. If you've got a couple of those key pieces in the squad, then I think I, I, I'd be more willing to have a conversation. Right now, yeah. I look at it and say, it's relatively early still for, for, to, from where we were just a few years ago. And we just, I think we need a few more building blocks, a few more years. Um, And obviously this is entirely dependent on performance being as good as it has been this season. You know, if Moyes has another season like last season in in the Premier League without a European competition to, to, to support it, then I'm all for pulling the trigger and going for for, for something else. But whilst his performance is really strong, which it is at the moment, Mm -hmm. whilst the team's performance is really good, which it has been for the most part this season, I don't think there's much value in making that that decision right now. Um, Anyway, that's where we are. Um, That's where I am. Cal, slightly different, but I think the key takeaway is that if it... (laughs) If you're going to have one key takeaway from the conversation is that Moyes has done a very good job from where it was to where it is. And therefore it's very hard when you come to a contract discussion to say, yeah, nah, we're, we're, we're not interested. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. I think that's, yeah, that's, that's it in a nutshell. We did it once before. We told him he wasn't good enough. And then a little while later, we had to beg him to come back. So and then Mario Hosios destroyed my football club. <laughs> uh, right. Okay. Roberto, uh, Thank you for listening to this episode of the West Ham Breakdown. Uh, we will be back next week. Um, at some point, there's a chat about centre-backs. Cal did an amazing section on the podcast that we recorded <laughs> that hasn't come out, and then we've gone over an hour in this one, so there's no way it's going to be in this one. But we will get it in at some point, and you'll get to hear our thoughts on um, on centre-backs that we like, or Cal's thoughts on centre-backs that we like, and me talking a little bit about Joey Verman, um, because we had some more January content for you. Um, 
but until then, please do check out the website, check out our episode on TIFO, follow us on both on Twitter, check out the graphs that I posted because they'll be interesting and they'll inform your conversations about the managerial situation at West Ham. And um, yeah, thank you very much, Carl. Thanks, everyone. See you next week. Sports Social Podcast Network.